0: My name is Justin Gage and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard transmissions podcast with your
1: host, Jason Woodbury.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions. My guest this week is country singer Margot Price, whose 2020 might just give yours a run for its money. Last year, she had a baby, her husband Jeremy Ivey contracted COVID, and her house got hit by a tornado. She also put out a new record. That's how rumors get started. One that finds her teaming up with folks like Sturgill Simpson and guitarist Matt Sweeney for a rock and 70s influenced set of songs. We talked about that new record, as well as her radio show, Runaway Horses, friendships with artists like John Prine, Willie Nelson, and Jesse Coulter, and speaking up in an industry that often punishes it, as well as uh, we get into her forays into the legal cannabis business. It's a pretty great episode. If you enjoy this show or any of our episodes, Uh, go ahead and share it with folks. We count on your word of mouth. If you want to take your support a step further, check us out on Patreon. Okay, let's head in. Here's my talk with Margot Price. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Margo, thanks so much for taking the time today to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions. We, uh, I think we spoke back in 2017 for Aquarium Drunkard, but that feels conservatively like a hundred years ago at this point. So I'm really looking forward to to catching up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was, uh, that was a different lifetime. That was the before times.
0: The before times. Yeah. It's funny that people are calling it that, but, uh, but I think also accurate.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, calling 2020 uh, a bad year feels kind of, uh, I don't know, does, doesn't feel like it's really expressing it, you know, correctly, sort of a putting it lightly situation. But in addition to all the normal reasons that 2020 sucked for uh, for people, you had an insane 2020 uh, on top of all, on everything. Uh, your partner, Jeremy, got covid your house got hit by a tornado. Uh, one of your mentors, John Prine, passed away, uh, and all of that while you're putting out a new record and you've got a new baby, and, you know, two young kids at home. So I guess what I want to say is, with all of that in the rear view, um, how are you feeling about 2020? And what lessons do you think that year taught you?
1: I mean, kind of taught me what I what I always knew, which is, um, you know, things can just Change in an instant, and you have to really be be grateful for every moment. I mean, not to sound, uh, I don't know, cliche or, or or overly positive because I'm definitely not, <laughs> not not that. But um, <laughs> you know, I I did I did learn a lot. I think personally, I I just you know kind of came back down to earth in a huge sense. That's like, you know, just when you think everything is has fallen into place and, and your whole life's figured out, you know, it can all change so quickly. And um, so I, am just grateful for our health and, you know, of course I miss touring. Like, I mean, I, I, I can't even explain how, how much I, I miss my, my old life. And, you know, I know everybody does, but, um, I think musicians and, and performers and artists, we've, Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking forward to shows and, um, looking forward to, to putting out new music again and, and recording and, and just counting, counting my blessings as far as our health and and a roof over our head.
0: Yeah. You know, I interviewed, uh, Don Bryant on transmissions and, and we were talking about, I can't stand the rain, you know, the song that his, that he co-wrote with his wife, Ann Peebles. And, uh, and when we talked about that song, he told me that uh, that it was inspired by just a conversation that he and Anne had at home one night. They were getting ready to go out and, and it rained and she said, I can't stand the rain. And he was like, I think that's a song title. And uh, I wondered, you know, with you and Jeremy having long been musical partners, when you're going through stuff... Do you ever look over at each other and and in the midst of a bad situation and sort of say like well m- maybe oh, there's a, sure. at least a song in this? Of sure. I think him and
1: I are both always really listening in in conversations that we have obviously with each other but you know even even with strangers it's like always trying to find those those uncut gems in there that that you can mold into a song. Um the other day we were sitting out by a fire with just two other friends, and and one of them said, uh, "You have every right to be wrong." And I got out my my phone and wrote down a, <laughs> wrote down a note. I was like, "I'm taking that." You know, they didn't write songs, so I I, I told them blatantly I was going to take that line. Um, yeah, Jeremy and I we have we have definitely uh, had our moments. I, one time we were in the kitchen and we were having a really intense, very serious fight. And I looked at him deadpan in the face and I said, you're an asshole. I can't stand you. And I want a divorce. And he said, that's a great country song title. (laughs) This was, you know, three, four years ago (laughs) when we were really, really into, uh, you know, writing in that old school, traditional kind of country frame. And so we did write that song. It hasn't been cut yet, but um, it broke the ice and the fight was over. And uh, yeah, it was it was funny, but I, I was like, it was like the Dewey Cox moment where you're like, "How dare you make this into a song right now, Dewey?"
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- I think that, yeah, I think that maybe that that Walk Hard, you know, you correct me if you feel wrong, if you feel like I'm wrong on this. It might be in a weird way the <laughs> ultimate music documentary. It's sort of like or, the, yeah. or 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 biopic, you know, because it's like. It, it, it it's all of them, you know, when he, when he shouts like, uh, I forget at one point, I think he says like, God damn it. This is a dark period or something. Like it's such a, <laughs> no. like,
1: <laughs> no, I love, such an I love that film thing. so much. It's, it's actually the songs are so smart and so well written too. And I, I hung out with John C. Riley. I sang with him when he came to third man records to, to record in the blue room. And we definitely had some conversations about writing those songs. And, uh, just how he, you know, how he made them so, feel so believably like they could have, you know, been cuts from from almost any genre.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, but yeah, I have to imagine that be, being in a creative partnership, you know, it's like you you both are, you know, as songwriters, mining your own lives for songs and then. You know, I just think about how interesting and, uh, I don't know, generative it must be to share yeah, that I mean, with a partner. Sometimes
1: it's, it's, it's great because we we nourish what the other person's doing and, and really add to, um, you know, when we're co-writing a song together, it's like, it's so natural and perfect. And then other times it's like, oh, we both have stuff to do and, you know, you're kind of like fighting for um, just, there's an analogy that Jeremy always throws around and he's like in a relationship, there's one person that's a garden and one person is the gardener and, you know, they each give to each other, but it's, it goes back and forth in that way where sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm pouring myself into producing his records and, and, you know, co-writing more with him. And then I'm like, okay, I got to get back to me. And, and it's, it's a really fine balance. I mean, it's, it it definitely comes with with its set of issues but 17 years and and going strong somehow not divorced in this business feels like a like an eternity
0: <laughs> yeah yeah abs- abs- absolutely do you i mean are, are you the kind of songwriter who is is almost always writing
1: yeah we do both of us really push each other competitively i think um it's a healthy competitiveness most of the time, but he's, he's always writing. He's writing like constantly. And, and I'll, I will have like bits of time where I feel like I'm not inspired and maybe I'll be like reading more or, you know, painting or, or just trying to do other things. But lately during lockdown, because I'm not playing shows and and doing other things that I would normally do as a musician, I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to write constantly because At the end of the day, you know, pandemic or not, that's all that you really leave behind. And shows are, you know, they have a lasting effect on people and they serve their place. But I think that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you had people like Neil Young that were putting out two, maybe three records a year and and now, you know, we've gotten into this like, oh, well, album cycles are a year and a half and two years. I'm, I'm trying to get back to the place where it's like, no, I want to put out an album every year, if not more. And to do that, you really do have to write a lot because not everything you write is going to be a keeper. A lot of, you know, I have songs that they end up in the in the scrapyard and, and then later maybe you resurrect like a line out of it or something. But um, yeah, writing, writing a lot is a good idea because it's just like any other muscle you have to, to use it to become better at it. And, and I've really seen Jeremy like in his late thirties and, and even hitting 40, it's like, wow, he's hit writing some of the best songs of his life. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to, uh, to write as much as I possibly can. And and I've been finger picking and, and trying to like get better at playing guitar too. So when I come back out of this, it's like, you know, I keep equating it to like being in prison. I'm like, all right, I'm just working out, getting in great shape here. So when I come back, I'm yeah. in, I'm in, I'm in fighting shape.
0: Yeah. You're on the, you're like, uh, in the, the prison yard, uh, workouts, uh, you know, <laughs> montage right exactly. now. Um, when you, when you talk about finger picking and stuff, is that, is that something that you, um, I, I mean, cause having seen you live a couple of times, I mean, you, you're a great guitarist um you know you you, you maybe do uh ha or, you know like live i've seen you strum a little bit more but finger picking is something that is that a skill that you found yourself you know you know focused on there's something meditative about that kind of playing is that maybe part of your attraction to it in a, in a year where uh i guess it's probably fair to say everything kind of feels nuts
1: yeah i mean it's, it's something to focus on for sure i've I think, you know, I've, we're always playing such like uptempo stuff with the band. And I'm, I play a lot of bar chords. I go up the neck and I'm definitely a great rhythm player. But when I, when I first started playing, I, I wanted to finger pick. I was listening to like Joan Baez and, and Joni Mitchell and Elizabeth Cotton and Skip James and people that had like really distinct finger picking styles. And, um, and then, you know, I just kind of put it away and, uh, and and haven't done it in a while, and so I I started getting out all these older covers that I used to do and older songs of mine, and um, just trying to hone in my craft. And even you know, being I can play a couple leads, I just never really do it during the show. So I'm trying to get back into that state where I'm like, okay, hey, you're you're not done growing. You can continue on and uh, and and do more things. I mean, I you know I love to play drums and and play piano during my live set but i'm like you know you you could really you could be better at guitar so it's something i've been trying to to dedicate a little bit of time to every day and uh and just get back into it cuz i i definitely kind of fell out of out of love with with doing it for a while there
0: do you um do you primarily play acoustic at home or do you do you play electric a lot too
1: i've been playing more acoustic recently because I well for for the beginning part of quarantine, I was only playing piano and uh, we just got mm. this really beautiful used um, Baldwin. It's like a 1966 and it's just right there in the living room. And it's so easy to just sit down and, and play it. But just this past week I had, um, we, we put up a bunch of guitar hangers. So there's guitars hanging in every single room. And I'm like, I gotta get my, my acoustic calluses back. Um, but I I do, yeah, you know, it's something that if you, if you don't use it, you lose it. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got the acoustics laying everywhere and I I do need to, to get out my electric more and do that because I was playing electric during like two or three songs on, on stage. And then, yeah, it's just, um, it's just been something that I, that I know that I need to pick up and, and play more.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, that's how rumors get started. You know, there's it's it's, it's a record that uh, there's a lot of rock and roll moments on this record and um I really enjoy that that you kind of push things in into that direction. Um one of the songs I mean, well, you know, you you already alluded to it, Be, being off the road. I have to imagine that that has been just a minor, a major head trip for you. Um, you You've got, you've got the song prisoner of the highway on the record. And, and I just, I I know that as a, as a, as a musician, that's one of the primary ways that you make money first and foremost. Uh, But beyond that, I wonder, you know, if this last year for you, how has it felt sort of removing because because live music is almost like there's it's like an example of the sort of feedback loop that happens with music right like you sing the songs and then you're getting this energy back from the crowd and i wonder what it's been like to adjust to to not having that has it has that revealed anything to you about your relationship with music that has surprised you
1: i definitely um i miss that crowd interaction and i've you know, we had been practicing, the band and I, we'd been making like extended arrangements of the songs with, you know, like really heavy jams. And, and we had all these transitions worked out. to you know, how the live show was gonna go and not being able to to play these on the road has just, it's really been devastating because I think that, you know, the, the album's great, but I think that my band and I are predominantly, we're just, we're a live band and we convert a lot of people that way. Um, you know, we, I always had people say like, I never liked country music, but then I saw you play and I really loved it. And, you know, with this album, I was probably alienating some of my country fans by, you know, first and foremost saying like, hey, this isn't really a country record. Um, but I know that if we could have played it live, it it would have, it would have pleased people. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's been really hard not to, not to have that, um, Cause I thought this was, this was going to be like a kind of a turning point, you know, like you always get one place in your career and then you kind of feel like you get stalled out somewhere. And, and I wanted this to, um, you know, to be a moment where it's like people that are like, no, I don't like country to, to actually give us a chance and listen to it because it was very influenced by Tom Petty and and the Heartbreakers and Linda Bronstadt and, um, you know fleetwood mac and i think bands that just have a mass appeal but it's it's like good pop music you know like it's not like i was going like pop country or something i was just like okay i'm gonna play rock and roll now because to me that just seemed like the obvious next step um but it's yeah it's been weird to to just kind of put the music out there and of course you know the fan support and reaction has been great um but there's just something that that playing live, it, you know, it's just that human connection that I think everybody's really missing, whether you're in the audience or on stage. I mean, I, shit, I miss going to shows and, and oh, yeah. yeah, seeing people live. It's it's it can be a really spiritual experience.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's been weird to not have that. It's, it's, I mean, live stuff is just, there's, there's this feeling of catharsis, you know, and the physicality of it, you know, like I, I really do, I really do miss the feel of like a a bass amp kind of like rattling my insides. And it's like, it's weird that, that, you know, we haven't been in, we haven't had that available to us as people. Um, but, but from your end, I mean, I have to imagine that it's, 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 it's even, it's even stranger, you know, especially because you've had all this time to, to, to think about songs and, and you had a record that you really were expecting to uh, turn some people's heads. Did you, you know, you you mentioned that there was maybe some, you know, consideration to alienating country fans or, or or turning them off at all. Was that something you had really, was that something you worried about? You know, I think about how, you know, Sturgill Simpson, who, who worked on the record with you and co-produced it alongside you, you know, that it definitely seems like, you know the two of you share this willingness to to go w- wherever I mean for you country music is this just another kind of music you in know in you know I mean I don't I, I guess what I mean to say is you weren't were you were you personally worried about going rock and roll or were you just wondering if fans were going to maybe not know how to contextualize it within the body of your your work
1: Well, I, you know, I think first and foremost, as an artist and, uh, and a musician, you have to always follow the muse, because if you follow what you think your fans want you to do, or what you think that the press wants you to do, you're going to be lost. And, and that was how I got my foot in the door anyway, was just finally, you know, kind of sticking to my guns and like, just writing from the heart. And I, I just look at artists like, you know, like I said, uh Linda Ronstadt, where it's like she sang country mm-hmm. music, she sang rock and roll, she even did, you know, canciones de Mi padre, which her label Yeah, had, incredible, record. Her label didn't want her to do it and it was wildly successful. And then you've got, you know, like I said, Neil Young and and Neil Young plays like thrasher punk shit. And then he's also like writes these really tender, like folky country songs. Um yeah, And so, you know, and I, I feel like I had the kind of fans that were, because I was signed to third man, it was like, they weren't maybe country fans anyway. They were rock and roll fans that were converted to country. But I know that there was a large body of my fan base that, you know, found me and saw me as some kind of like, you know, savior of, of country or like one of these um, revivalists that like had to stick into that genre for their entire life, but it's, that's just not who I am. And, you know, even somebody like Dolly Parton, it's like, if she wouldn't have crossed over and, and, you know, done pop music or, you know, islands in the stream, whatever, she would not have the lasting um appeal. You know, it's like, that's like building, right. yeah, building yeah. a legacy versus like staying in. I mean, and, and country music is like, it's at the height of its popularity, you know, the last like three, four years. And I think it may be scared. Um, yeah, you I'm know, with Loma Vista now. I think maybe they were kind of like, well, wait, we signed a country artist. Like, aren't you going to put on a country record? And so, you know, I think it, it makes, uh, the suits nervous sometimes when you say you want to change something <laughs> yeah. because they're like, well, you've got a formula and it's working and we've done the numbers. But, uh, yeah, I, I think you've right. got to go out on the edge and make yourself uncomfortable to to keep it interesting. Like I just I see certain artists that like just make the same record over and over with the same producer and the same band and it's just like god, aren't you sick of listening to it cuz I am.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Absolutely. I think about, you know, somebody like Willie Nelson who you've worked with so much, right? And and here's a guy for whom he's interested in in music he's interested in jazz he's interested in blues he's interested in country he's interested in good songs he doesn't seem like he cares about the about the the name on it and i find that there's something that happens it happens with you know all genres but man within the country idiom there is such an emphasis placed on you know whether or not something is country (laughs) Or isn't. And I have to imagine that must frustrate the fuck out of you as an artist.
1: I mean, completely. (laughs) Jeremy and I have had this conversation before. There's a, I I will keep the person nameless, but there's like a a t-shirt that this artist put out that said, that ain't country. And it's like, Okay, well, it's the blues. Like, do you like the blues? It, okay, it's Etta James or you know, it's Aretha Franklin. Yeah, it ain't country, but it's good. And there's like this whole, these purists that are like, there's two kinds of music: country and western. And I'm like, no, they're like, first of all, country is derivative of blues. Is you know, derivative. Well, yeah. They're all- they're all yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And there's bad. There's bad rock and roll and. There's there's bad country music and there's great rock and roll and there's and there's great country music. And you just have to find people that I think I'm, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it might have been Sam Cooke that said, like, I don't judge whether the voice is good. I judge whether I believe it's telling the truth or not. And I'm paraphrasing very badly, but.
0: Yeah, no, no, I. I yeah, completely. And I do think that there's something I, I like anybody who listens to this podcast knows that there are these moments where I, I try to ask a huge question and then I, I get bogged down like halfway through and I lose the trail. So I'm going to try not to do that right now with you. Um, <laughs> but I do, but I do think that, um, I do think that that emphasis on what is or isn't is sort of, um, I think I think it illustrates a little bit about the the kinds of I think it it illustrates something about the way people think about the world very often yeah. which is that 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 people very very much want to be able to say this is what I am and this is what I do or this is what I like or this is what I think you know um and I think that country is one of these things where first and foremost to your point country and blues they they weren't different things at first they got called to different things so that the very first record labels could market to uh you know a, a, a white audience or a black audience you know more than anything exactly. um and i think about that and i think about how this music comes from the same place the same wellspring you know and as an artist i mean i think like on this record exactly like you said you know there are these like fleetwood mac moments and then you think about fleetwood mac who were this giant pop band in the 70s but started off as like a reverent british blues band you know and uh and you think about all that and you just have to ask yourself like just in the same way that i don't want to eat hamburgers every day you know uh (laughs) You want to have some variety, right? You know, you want to be able to explore, and I think that for someone like you, who it sounds to me like what you're talking about is that the truth-telling aspect of it is what you're looking for, really, regardless of the sound. You want to know that somebody's telling the truth, yeah. and I think that if you're convinced that only certain kinds of people can tell the truth, yeah, um, you're never gonna figure anything interesting out. You know what I oh, mean? I know. I'm- you're always looking to exclude yeah
1: yeah. i think i yeah it's such it's such a insane argument to me because any any country artists that that i really do like they had different influences and you have to be open-minded in order to grow and you know it's like even waylon like he was hanging out with buddy holly and you know uh you go back and and listen to his early records or like even Dolly Parton's early records, she was doing like doo-wop. It's like a song called busy signal that is like, it is not country. And everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah everybody just kind of, like you said, everybody wants to be like, this is me. This is, this is who I am. But I've always kind of been a bit of a chameleon and, you know, I love to, to change things up and, and wear different hats, you know, just for lack of a, a better term. Obviously that's an analogy, but uh Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think... I mean you you wear hat you wear real yeah, hats. I do. Too, I wear cowboy but... hats but uh but I I think <laughs> you know it's it's just so limiting if people say I'm only gonna play this one genre, I'm only gonna like this one genre. And and as we've seen in in our culture is that we have, we always have a resurgence. And before this country resurgence happened, it was the soul resurgence. And it started with my friend, Brittany Howard from the Alabama shakes. It was like, this girl's telling the truth. This is good music. And then you had all these other bands that wanted to come along. and All these other labels were like, I'm going to sign them. Cause they're like Alabama shakes. Then you had people doing blue eyed soul, but you know, I was even doing it. I've, I love soul music. I wanted to be, james brown for a while you know and that you've got you've got to you've got to try different things and and bring all those different flavors in to really make something original and it it is so hard to make something original because everything's been done but um you know it's like like you're saying willie nelson like he was obviously really influenced by django reinhardt and by jazz artists and that's what makes his sound his but he doesn't limit himself to only working with country artists I mean shit he recorded with Snoop Dogg you know
0: (laughs) right right yeah one of your 2020 projects was that you started a radio show uh, Runaway Horses and I wanted to ask you you know how you like doing uh, radio has that always been a sort of a dream of yours
1: Uh, actually not not at all I you know I, I enjoy listening to you know like Tom Petty's buried treasure and and Bob Dylan's same time radio hour and and uh you know like Elizabeth Cook has apron strings and I it's never anything I envisioned for myself but I felt like you know everybody when the pandemic hit all my musician friends they were like okay we're doing a weekly live stream with our acoustic guitars and I just I did not want to do that I I didn't want to sit there with the camera pointed at me and like play to a phone. And, um, I don't know. I, I love sharing music of, of my friends who are, you know, lesser known and, and just, you know, rare, deep older tracks. Um, that's, you know, something that I enjoy like finding when, you know, when I found Bob Dylan's theme time radio hour, he turned me on to so much cool stuff. So I, it just kind of was, um, out of out of necessity of trying to like find a way to keep in touch with my fans and and still do something productive, but not uh, hate myself for yeah, just staring at the phone and and trying to put on a live show because feels so sterile. <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: I, I take it that the live streams it doesn't doesn't sound like something that you're particularly interested in.
1: No, I mean, it's you know, it's something that that I've enjoyed doing with my band, and you know i've I've done a couple of them, but, yeah, as far as just you know sitting there and, and playing weekly to the phone or, or doing like a stage it, those seemed kind of like a painful um, process to me. so, yeah, yeah, it turned out really great to be able to do, you know kind of whatever was going on in the world or um, whatever was on my mind to kind of be able to make a little hour long um, conversation with, with fans and, and, and sharing music that people might not have heard. And then we incorporated the, the hotline that I started and people can like leave requests or funny messages. And, and we've been playing them at the end of the, at the end of the episodes
0: yeah, I I was gonna ask if uh if you've gotten some strange messages on the hotline. I have to imagine that any time you open it up to the general public, uh, you know there might be some, some weird stuff. Has anything surprised you or or you know kind of blown you out of the water?
1: Um. Well, I do have uh, my my management opens them and kind of censors them because <laughs> <Yeah>. there, <laughs> there can be some uh, pretty tasteless messages but um for the most part you know it's it's been great and i and i've i've always whenever i'm feeling down i just go into that Dropbox and and listen to to the things that that people leave in there it's a mix of like funny things and a bunch of my friends and and they prank call me on there and so they'll try to do different voices and leave me crazy messages so yeah, yeah it's that's been a- fun for all
0: that's awesome. Do you, when you're, when you're picking songs for the, for the radio show, I mean, we've already talked about how you're interested in music from all over the map. Um, do you have sort of a, fr- a framework when you're, when you're putting stuff together, do you follow sort of like mixtape logic or are there any sort of like a uh, sort of guidelines that you have for yourself or is it sort of a free for all?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, when I feel like as I've, as time has gone on, I've, I've gotten better at, at putting thing, you know, putting the whole thing together, but I just always start with like a theme and then the songs kind of come, come from, you know, just like gut instinct, really. Um, my favorite one that I did was, was an episode on John and It was like a, a two part and it had contributions from a bunch of his, uh, you know, people that were influenced by him and, and friends of him and his wife, Fiona. And I had also, when I was hanging out with John several times, he'd be in story mode. And I thought like, man, I just re- really want to remember these, these moments. And so I turned on my voice recorder on my phone and, you know, it was never anything I thought that I'd share. But after he passed, um, my husband and I were sitting around the fire and I I pulled up the the voice memos and I just thought like, you know what? I, I don't think that he would mind if I shared these stories because they were they were really special to to me. And and then I of course got permission from his wife and and his son, and they gave me their blessing. So that one and and um, probably three or four other episodes are now up on a Spotify podcast. They're a little bit easier to listen to there than in the YouTube format, which I was first doing.
0: Right, right. I th- I think that radio is such an interesting thing, and it, and it is interesting that you're talking about this need to to connect with uh with your fans, and obviously with live music off the table, radio is such a perfect way to do that. Did you when you when you first kind of got into music as a young person, uh, was it through through the radio? I mean, were you the kind of person who would make, you know, have a yeah? I I remember recording songs I liked off the radio onto a, a cassette, you know. Was that sort yeah. of something that you some, something you were into as well?
1: Oh, for sure. I I definitely made mixtapes on a like karaoke two deck tape recorder that I had, and then you know I would record my favorite songs that I'd heard on the radio and make these like little mixtapes. And even I would splice together songs because I was I was a dancer, so I would make like a medley of songs that went into each other. <laughs> That's I, awesome. Yeah, a lot of it was bootlegged from the radio. Um I mean this, you know, the that's where I heard Tom Petty for the first time and um so many so many artists. I mean, there was obviously a lot of bad stuff that I had to weed through and a lot of what was going on in the 80s and 90s I I didn't really connect to, but I you know, you could still even turn on the oldies station which my dad listened to. Um it was like one oh three point five. I wish I could remember the name of the station, but you know that's where I heard um, everything from the Beatles to, um, you know, just Ronettes or whatever. It was definitely yeah. opened a lot, a lot of musical doors for me.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, not long ago uh, on Twitter, you posted. Uh, let's See if I can quote you here. Uh, you said art is dying because nobody wants to pay for it. Um, And I'm thinking about how, you know, when we're talking about connecting with their fans and stuff, you know, connect you connecting with your fans. I think about how uh, people maybe have like a, a slightly disconnected view of what it takes to to survive. I remember in like the two thousands when, Lars Ulrich from Metallica was, like, talking about Napster and stuff. It seemed so easy back then to sort of be like, oh, man, like, a rich rock star is mad. I feel so bad for him, you yeah. know? <laughs> but that's oh. back when people, you know, we sort of, we would have to pay 22 bucks for a CD or whatever. Um, yeah. With 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 everything that's going on now, I mean, do you think that that the average fan sort of understands how things have changed and how... I mean, I don't want to be a bummer, but sort of how dire it is for, for artists right now in terms of like getting paid for the work that they make. Um, do you think the average fan sort of has a a feeling for what's going on?
1: Um, I think a lot of my fans definitely do. And, you know, they've always been people that have, I mean, I sell an insane amount of CDs and records for an artist today. And, um, you know, that's not to say that a lot of my fans don't also just listen to my stuff probably on YouTube or Spotify, but um, you know, I I think a lot of people have tried to support um, my band and I with buying merch and that's the great thing about shows is people, you know, people come to the show and then they love it so much that they, you know, they would buy an album and then I would, I would stand there sometimes until you know, two or three hundred people went through the line so I could shake their hand and sign the record. And that's just kind of the old school way of doing it. You know, um, I, I miss doing that. But I I hope that more people start to to buy albums again or even better yet, I hope that these huge streaming corporations start to pay artists. And, and there's kind of a bit of a... A gray area, I think, where we don't know where a lot of that money's going. It's like, is our management getting it? Like, where where is that money going? And why are artists not being compensated right. more fairly? And I, I think, you know, Brittany Howard and I had a, a conversation about it when we did that joint interview on Rolling Stone. And I asked her, you know, what pisses you off most about the music industry? And, and her answer was streaming. It's like, you know, we work really hard to make these records. And then you don't make a cent off of it. And now that we can't tour, I think it's all the more clear that we need to go to Washington once we have new leadership in there. And we need to talk to them because it's, I mean, right. Songwriters are, are going to die and you're going to see less quality in the work because if there's no money to be made in it, no one's going to be doing it.
0: Right. I mean, I think about how, you know, you, it's, it's often this thing of um, people talk about artistic purity, you know, and authenticity and all these things. And they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so is not in it for the money. And uh, obviously, that that's true of a lot of artists, you know. Um, I think we do see right now that there are people who would figure out some way to keep making music, even if they can't live off of it. And at the same time, <laughs> you have to think if you care about this music, you certainly would want people to be able to survive by making art you know and i and i wonder if if maybe as a as a as a culture it seems like maybe we're not valuing certain things to the degree that we that we should be i think with the pandemic we saw that with who got termed you know an essential worker you know and and how very often the people who aren't aren't, you know, aren't being compensated fairly for the, for the value they bring to society and the work they do. Um, It feels to me like there's just so much, it all feels like wrapped up together, you know, in terms of where we, 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 we're not great at thinking about where things come from. And I think that when it comes to something like streaming, I think in a weird way, it's disconnected the average listener from the actual understanding of, of what this is, you know what I mean? Like what it takes to to, to make a song, and, uh, and 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 I wonder if if you as an artist, you know, do you you're not. Uh you're not a shy person when it comes to telling people what you think, you know, whether we're talking about income inequality or civil rights, you know, racism, uh, you're very vocal over the uh, over the summer, but do you feel like it is sort of um, imperative that artists get out there and talk about the business side of things, no matter how much of a bummer or a drag that might be in order for things to change?
1: Yeah, I think we're gonna have to come together and create like a union and I think, you know, for a while, like Neil Young, he pulled all of his stuff off Spotify, and I believe maybe Taylor Swift did the same. Um, but then everybody kind of folds because no one's in it together. If we all just said we're not going to be exploited, it would change. But we're we're kind of you know put into this like you don't have an option because they they base a lot of festival bookings on your. Spotify listeners and your Spotify numbers. And I'm like, well, I'm not people that like buy my records. So that is that actually working against me? Um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, art has always been put on the back burner as a low priority, but if everybody had to go, you know, a week without listening to music or watching a film or reading a book, I think that you realize that it does benefit quality of life in, uh, spiritual and, um, in a spiritual way that, you know, it it is hard to put like a tangible price on it. But like I said, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that after January 20th comes, we can maybe put a little pressure on people to, you know, obviously we've done the save our stages and all the fear of when the pandemic's over, we're going to have no places to work So, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're getting relief, but I know a lot of my artist friends are really struggling and, you know, even my bandmates, a lot of them are, I mean, some of them are doing sessions when they can, but people, a lot of people aren't even recording. So it's like, they're going back to, uh, you know, my guitar player, he's, he's painting houses for a living right now. And it's, it's a waste of talent and it's, it's a damn shame that he, that he has to do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not making money either. So it's just it's just tough on everybody at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the last year really, I think, and this is going to air probably just a little bit after the inauguration. So we should make it clear that we have no idea what's going to happen in the next couple of days. God. Yeah. You always have to clarify, clarify everything now. Like, Hey, you know, that monumental thing that just occurred, like it happened after we, we we didn't know. So we're not just avoiding it, you know, but, um, but I think you make such a good point that, like, this stuff is spiritually necessary, you know? And when you think about the history of our country, there's a lot of stuff to be very, very. I'm not. A, I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff to be ashamed of in the history of our country. When you think about the stuff that we can be proud of, you know, I think our artistic heritage is, like, very much at the top of that list, you know? America and this country has, has, has produced great music, you know, all over the world, great music is being produced of course. But, um, but I do think that if we don't value that, if we don't put actual emphasis on supporting the people who make the things we care about, you know, and that goes across all industries, we're, we're in, in deep trouble, you know, and I think we're starting to see some of that. I don't want it okay. just to be, you know, I don't want just playlists curated by algorithms. I want Margot Price to make a radio show and play her favorite songs, you know? I mean, uh, and I think that 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 there's a big, in, there's a need for people to understand uh, that real people are responsible for this stuff. And I think that uh, it's hard, it's hard to, to maybe it's hard to have that when we're so separated from each other, you know, in terms of physical, physical spaces.
1: Well, and I remember that tweet that you referenced at the beginning of of this last tangent that we went on, but it was I read a New York Times article that was called like the Great Cultural Depression or something, and it just broke my heart to read it. I mean, I think that art is already in the toilet. I think that most music in the mainstream sucks, and uh, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm just old or jaded, but I. You know, I, I said art is dying because no one wants to pay for it and musicians are dying because we can't tour. And then I said, I think it's, it's like the great American novel, but no writers will be around to write about it because they'll all be homeless or dead. And this is right, the right. day after Christmas. And somebody was like, wow, you're positive. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is it's just... The truth i just call it like i see it sorry
0: Mar- margo price uh not always fun on twitter no yeah.
1: <laughs> not happy all the time not optimistic nor pessimistic just realistic
0: yeah 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 well i think about how how you know especially in country music and and, and i know that that it's important, I think, that we understand that you're, you know, I don't, I don't think of you as bound by the, the rules of country music, but there definitely is, like, a, a a weird thing that happens with country artists where they're sort of expected to sort of keep it, um, semi-polite if, uh, I think we're recording this right after a, a big viral story about Chris Christofferson, uh, getting mad at, at Toby Keith, uh, was posted, uh, on Twitter and you kind of weighed in on that. And, uh, uh, oh, yeah. and I think, and I think, I think about how often, yeah, there is sort of like an expectation placed on country artists to, to keep it, uh, I don't know what, how to, where, how to put it, keep it clean. Don't, don't upset the the customer base, which might oh, include, yeah. you know, somebody,
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just like live in white America and don't talk about problems. And even when, when certain artists have kind of spoken out about things, it's like, well, you can tell that they've been trained, they've sat through their press class and they know exactly how to answer the questions or how to appear to be supporting a cause without actually saying anything at all. And, um, I went on the Opry this summer and, and asked the opry blatantly to not have artists like lady antebellum who were you know stealing a a black artist's name and and to have to be more inclusive to black artists and they actually sent me a really nice um letter and said thank you know thank you for saying that i mean i haven't been invited back but i (laughs) i went on and i said my piece and then you know, I think a couple months later, there were a couple speeches given at the CMAs, which was an abomination that they even had that event during the time when the pandemic was raging and Tennessee is right. yeah. number one in the world for COVID. But, you know, people were kind of trying to get on there and uh, let's say something, but like not actually say it. And it's, it's because they've, they've all been trained, you know, to, to be edgy, but not too edgy. And, and, uh, I think women especially are, you know, have always been taught to be a pretty face, but we don't want to hear your opinions. And, um, I'm just, I'm not going to conform with any kind of way that I look, I'm, uh, you know, getting plastic surgery to look like Kim Kardashian. And I'm also not going to keep my mouth shut. And so that's why I feel like I'm kind of, I've been outcasted of, the you know the nashville establishment and that it's been that way since day one it, you know it didn't matter that i played snl it didn't matter that uh you know i got recognition from a lot of uh really reputable press sites it was just kind of more like well we we don't necessarily like what you're saying so you're not invited to the party and it's fine right. i don't like their parties anyway
0: well you well you were signed to the rock and roll guys label the guy who never produced a great record by loretta lynn or anything like that
1: right right yeah (laughs) uh,
0: you know speaking of loretta you've obviously worked with so many people you've worked with willie nelson we've talked about john prine i wanted to ask you a little bit about working with jesse coulter you know a couple years ago i interviewed her for aquarium drunkard she lives in arizona too where i live yes yeah So, so it's back in the old days when you could sit next to somebody in a, a, a place and talk to them, we got together and we talked about, she put out a great record a couple of years ago called the Psalms and it was so weird and mystic. Yes. And yeah. it felt to me like something from like the, uh, you know, the anthology of American folk music and that it had this like arcane, really creepy quality. And I was just so blown away by the quality and the sort of visionary element that she brings to her music. What's it, what's it like working with Jesse?
1: I mean, I know in, in Lenny K from Patti Smith band, like, Oh my
0: God, it's such a cool record.
1: Yeah. She's, she's wonderful. I, I think that I met her originally through Matt Ross Spang, who had, um, engineered and, and produced my first couple records. And, um, he was working with her on something and he showed her um, a video of me singing her rendition of why you've been gone so long. And uh, she just texted me out of the blue. And I mean, i would idolized both her and Wayland for, for years. Um, and, and then I just, I got this idea one day. Um, I, I actually went to her, her home in Phoenix and hung out with her. We, we, went to an Italian place and drank a bunch of wine together. And then we got back to her house and she was playing me these songs on her, on her baby grand piano. And I was like, Jesse, are these songs that you've written like recently? And she's like, yeah, you know, some, some of them I wrote, some of them I found. And like Waylon had a, a suitcase of, of songs that just, you know, had tons of lyrics. People had given him songs and she resurrected some of those. And I was like, you have got to record these um, I, you know, I'd love to be involved. And and somehow I talked my way into producing this album and, you know, it's been a couple years in the making now. And I'm just, I'm trying to get it out there. And it seems like it's, I don't know why it's taking so long, but it's going to be worth the wait. It's, it's a really incredible body of work and super inspiring that she's writing songs like this at her age. And I mean, she just played so beautifully and she played and sang at the same time. It was so tied together. We, you know, we tried to track them separately, but it was, it was impossible. She only Mm. could do it um, together where it, where it felt, you know, natural and, and, and holy. And so, yeah, I can't wait until that comes out. We're just trying to find the right home for it. And, you know, all the messy paperwork and the business side has been keeping it tied up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but feel like we've accidentally just uh, griped about the music industry uh, incessantly during this interview. But uh, (laughs) if there's a if there's a cool Jesse Coulter album out there that I haven't heard because somebody hasn't figured out how to get it to me, it feels like worth griping about. Um, What kind of I mean, what what kind of stuff did which which did you guys do together? I mean, was it stuff were you playing with her as well? Uh, Did you guys do Did you assemble the backing band? What, What was producing like for her?
1: Yeah, I um I sang on a couple songs we we sang together. I picked a couple songs that I thought that she should do. Um it was like a older song of hers and we changed the tempo. Um and I had my band play on it which I had just recorded. That's how rumors get started with
0: Ah, And
1: and a session band and, and I had not used my band and it was the first time I had not, not had them on a record. And so it was a really great way for us to all be involved in something and me to like kind of watch as an outsider, how they all worked so seamlessly. I mean, they, you know, built a lot of arrangements and just, it was, it was so easy and so fun and they all worship her and she was just blown away by their musicianship and um it came out way better than than i expected that it could um her daughter and i wrote a song together um and it yeah it's just it's really it's so phenomenal and i'm i'm like get this out get this out now you have got (laughs) to get this record out and and hopefully when everything gets back up and running again we'll be able to do a little tour together or something where you know my band can back her and and I'll sing with her but she's just Uh, she hung the moon I I adore her
0: yeah that's fantastic I want to ask you about another project of yours you you recently have got into the cannabis business and uh (laughs) and I I was I was gonna ask uh you know uh that's not I mean, it's it's a natural combination, I think. You know, music and weed. But um, how did how did that how did that happen? How did how did how did you find yourself kind of going down that road? And was there any hesitance as far as you were concerned, or did it just seem like uh, the right move?
1: Well, actually, I didn't recently get into the cannabis business. I used to grow and sell weed. Like you know, oh. decades ago, <laughs> so but, you know,
0: I'm sorry, I mean, I i mean, officially, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, yeah, right, <laughs>
1: right. I was just selling you know, dime bags out of my apartment, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of going back to your roots, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of musicians and actors, you know, it's like Kate Hudson, she sells yoga pants, and uh, you know, you've got Brandy carlisle sells wine, and uh, Tanny Tucker sells tequila, and everybody has they're different thing, whether it's, you know, you want to get into selling cowboy boots or whatever, but I was at um, Willie Nelson's ranch out there in luck, Texas. And I was smoking a lot of their pot that they were providing so generously. And it was just a high idea that kind of came to fruition. I met some really wonderful growers out in California, actually this native American woman who runs a company, called moon farms. And she used to be a drummer. And then she decided she wanted to get into farming and she doesn't even really smoke pot. She smokes a lot of CBD, but I, I love the fact that it is tied into farming and that of course, like Willie and being connected to farm aid and, and, and those wonderful people, the product that I'm selling is really good. It's like, you know, no pesticides, all organically grown, it's safe. Even the vapes, like, you know what you're getting, and I feel a lot better selling weed to people than I do whiskey because I've I've done both and pot never does me wrong. I mean, it's not right. for everybody, but it's you know, it's really cool that like Willie's Reserve, they do like C B D coffee and C B D tea. And it's it's something that I that I hope to expand more in. Um, I've been talking to a company in Illinois about uh putting out this line of like edibles with like honey and, uh, and different things that, you know, you can, you can eat and you don't have to smoke. Yeah. But I always joke that, you know, people are more likely to buy an eighth of weed than a CD. So <laughs> it's, yeah. it just only seems natural. I need to be an entrepreneur. Do
0: <laughs> <laughs> D. D- B- well, do you tend towards any particular strains personally? Are you, you know, more sativa or, or indica or do you have any, do, does it matter to you? Do you?
1: Uh, well, I, yeah, weed is weed and a friend with weed is a friend indeed. <laughs> All those cliches. I I sure. used to smoke a lot of indica because I felt like it calmed me down, but I have this pineapple sativa that is, is grown in California and it is the best get shit done weed. It's so happy and it's so light. You don't feel like scary stoned. Um, so that is my favorite strain. And I smoke it even before bed. It's like, it doesn't keep me up or anything. But um, yeah. I also have an Indica strain that just came out in Colorado. And I'm, yeah, I'm really happy with the product. It's it's something that I wish that I could buy here in Tennessee because I think you know everybody is drinking a lot during this pandemic and it's for me if i get a little stoned i still wake up in the morning feeling fresh as a daisy and can get everything done on my list of things to do <laughs>
0: yeah the la- lack of hangovers is a nice thing that's for sure um do you think and i mean i don't want to i don't want to uh, paint you know the, the weed business as some sort something you know bigger or more representational than it is but do you think that that does the fact that people have changed their mind about something that was so entrenched in the public consciousness as this like dirty or bad thing or degenerate type thing? Does the fact that people have changed their minds about something like weed um does that give you hope that that people are more open minded than maybe they're sometimes given credit for? Do you think that as we kind of head into 2021 are you feeling hopeful that Maybe things aren't as uh stuck as they feel at the at the moment?
1: Of course, you know, I'm I wanna see the good in people. Um the riot at the Capitol doesn't give me hope, but I do think, you know, with people being more open to cannabis and even psilocybin, um I think, you know, it sh- it does show progress from the fear mongering, um, reefer madness era of, of the olden days. Um, I, I do hope I'm like going on psilocybin here now <laughs> because that's been really instrumental for me and in, in taking me out of my depression and allowing me to travel places during, during the past year, uh, it's still a felony. And, and that is wild. I think that, you know, we have a lot to do as far as changing laws go. And one thing that I did not want to do as a middle-class white woman with a boutique weed line was, was ignore the fact that people are incarcerated still for cannabis related charges. And so I teamed up with the bail project and I give a percentage of every Every sale to them. Um, I think it's just it's important to raise awareness that there still is a lot of racial injustice going on oh, due, yeah. to Absolutely. It, due to cannabis charges. Um, so that's yeah, that is one thing that weighs heavy on me. As you know, as I'm like, oh, smoke my weed. I'm like, God, there people still are locked up for this shit. It's crazy.
0: Yeah yeah no I think that that's 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 really important and I think that um it's probably easier to to not think about that but um you know not thinking about problems is how they fester and have gotten as unbelievably bad as they are right now so I do you know I think I think that you're you're right you know on the money when it comes to speaking up about this and uh And again, like I said, you know, it just feels to me like I I, I find it so, uh, I find it so bolstering and such, uh, such a, uh, it gives me a a great feeling to know that, you know, you're out there saying the things that you, that you believe and that you're not, you know, holding back on any of that stuff. Because I think that, I think now's the time for these conversations, you know, and now's the time for us to challenge each other's assumptions and to, uh. Maybe question, uh, you know, the best way to use our privilege or or whatever, you know. Right. I say this, I say this again as a white guy, you know.
1: Well, I mean, ignorance is bliss. It's it's so true, but you know, the truth will set you free in in so many ways, and it's it is hard to to live in privilege and and not do anything um, about it. So I, th- I think everybody's making making steps towards um, a country that can hopefully be united again someday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, until then, we'll have, uh, your radio show to listen to, to feel better and your great records to listen to. So Margo, I really want to take, take a a minute to thank you for, for joining me here on transmissions.
1: Well, thank you so much. I've uh, been a huge fan of Aquarian drunkard for years and years. My husband and I, um, both were just like oh it'd be so cool to to do something with them someday so thank you and uh will see you out (laughs) in phoenix at zia
0: yeah uh, at some point uh we'll all be able to uh hang out again so uh thanks so much and uh i hope you have a great rest of your your day
1: yeah you too take care
0: thank you margo yeah cheers that's going to bring this week's episode to a close i'm jason p woodbury i write host and produce transmissions andrew horton edits our audio jonathan mark walls produces content for our social media and video outlets we've got graphic design by sarah goldstein and our executive producer and announcer is justin gage we'll be back next wednesday with an all-new conversation Another strange talk for these strange times. Be joined by Tamara Lindemann of The Weather Station next week on the show.